Well, good morning. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Community Church. And I'm with Perrin. I just love being together and worshiping together. What a joy it is to sing those words. One of the opening, the opening line of that song, you hear me when I call. You hear me when I call. Some of you this morning, you, you've walked into this place and that's, that's your morning song. And you, you believe in a God that hears prayers. And that is your experience. And there's joy and there's trust in that. Some of you walk in this morning and there's a gap between what you believe to be true. You know that that's true. But you're having a hard time experiencing that. And some of you may walk into this place this morning struggling to even believe in a God that hears our call. And uh, wherever you are in your journey, I'm thrilled that you're here this morning. We're going to start a new series. It's called A Faith of Influence. A Faith of Influence. And uh, a couple questions I want you to consider as we walk into this new series is, one, what is influencing your faith story? What are the influences? What are the inputs? What is influencing your faith story. And then what influence does your particular faith story have? What's the output? So there's things that are coming in. There are things that are going out. What does that look like for you today? Well, to do this, to get at these questions, I want to invite you to look at uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to be in First and Second Samuel for the next eight weeks. And I, I want you to hear this truth, though, before we dive in. And that is, um, wherever you are in your story, wherever you are, wherever you are in terms of hearing God, believing in that, experiencing that, know that you're never too old to still be influenced. And you're never too young to have influence. So wherever you are in your journey, we're going to, we're going to grow closer to the Lord through his word. As we look at First and Second Samuel, we're going to look at eight pivotal scenes in this really uh, two-volume book here. Eight pivotal scenes that are going to give us opportunities to look at some influence. And historically, we're looking at the time between really the judges, the ushering in of, of kings and really through the life of King David. I mean, we're roughly looking at uh, 1100 B.C. to 970 B.C. for historians out there. And then theologically, this is at a particular place in redemptive history where God is going to usher in this time of the kings that will point to an even greater king. Jesus. So it's going to set up some things to come. But I also want us to look at this particular series and these particular scenes of influences as opportunities, as windows into your own experience. We live in a particular time where the word influence or influencer is a big word. It's an important word. In many ways, we live in a time of unprecedented information and inputs. 
of all, think of all the, you know, you, you, you were doing that little decade, favorite decade. I was thinking, how many of us were influenced by the music of our favorite decade? I'll just leave it there. But when you think about all the inputs that we experience, all the, you fill in the blank, all the, the things that are clamoring for our attention, all the different sources that are trying to define who we are and have influence on us. And at the same time, we live in a culture where identity is often defined by counting and comparing your influence with somebody else. Think of all the counting and comparing that goes on when it comes to influence. Whether it's Instagram followers, whether it's Facebook likes, just on and on it goes. But influence is a big concept in our culture. It always has been. But I think it's more, perhaps more acute, more profound today. So how do we take a look at that and how do we have a, a worldview that might be different than what our culture would have? Because in many ways as we look out and we say, you know, how does, how does culture define identity perhaps through our influence? The gospel is going to give us a powerful alternative to that. The gospel is going to give us freedom from the bondage of having to be defined by influence. Well, let's dive in. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to look at a beautiful story, uh, the story of Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 1. I invite you to turn there, look on the screen. There was a certain man from Raphaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. 
and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it's relevant to us today, even 3,000 years later. We know, Lord, that the human heart is really still the same, even in the midst of all the influences we have on our lives today. Father, I ask now that my words are clear, that they're helpful, that they bring you glory and honor, and ask that you burn off whatever doesn't do those things. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to talk this morning about Hannah's pain, Hannah's processing, and then we'll move forward a little bit in chapter 2 to Hannah's prayer. So first of all, let's talk about Hannah's pain. This is a beautiful and poignant Narrative. One of the things I love about the Old Testament is you see the texture of characters. In even just a few words, you can begin to picture these people. You can see all their warts, their flaws, their hopes, their dreams. God's given us a word that's not simply abstract truth. It's not simply propositions to assent to, and there are plenty of those, but there are real flesh and blood stories of pain, stories of tension, stories of complexity that I think are absolutely um, helpful for us as we process whatever we bring in to this room this morning. Let's first talk about Hannah's pain. What is her pain? Well, obviously she is struggling with infertility. She does not have a child. And that in and of itself is, is tremendous pain. Some of you know that pain. Some of you have experienced that, and, and that's just really, really hard. In this particular culture, we can even add some layers to that pain. Because in this particular time, for a woman, children were your economic value. They were your value. They were your identity. More children to work the land. 
They were your security. You didn't have IRAs and 403Bs. Kids, that was your retirement account. They take care of you. That's your security. They were strength of the community. That's where the military would come from. So there's this identity pain that she's going to experience. Not to mention the pain of being in a polygamous marriage. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to the Old Testament, or you've some of these stories, there's, there's cobwebs as you look back on it. So often we'll, we'll read about uh, men who have multiple wives. And sometimes people look at the Bible and say, how can you believe in a book? How can you believe that's God's word? And it, it doesn't just come right out and condemn that practice. And one of the ways to answer that is to simply say, show me a place in the Bible where polygamy works well. It's a disaster every single time. So God's word doesn't change. His standards don't change. There are things, as we often say, that the Bible describes, but it does not prescribe. In other words, this is how it was, this is not how it should be. There's obviously the, the pain of desperately wanting to have a child and not having that desire fulfilled. But then there's this, also this spiritual pain of believing that the Lord had closed her womb. Think about that for a moment. I mean, this, this deep-seated belief that God is sovereign, God is in control, and yet he has not given me the desires of my heart. And that can always, whatever the situation is, that can always be a challenge to faith. Where is God? Are you really near? Do you really hear my prayer? Why, why, what have I done? How, where are you, Lord? Are you really good? It's okay to ask those questions. The good news is we don't have to stay there. And then there's her response to this pain, her response to the voices that she hears. Let's take a look at some of those voices. Well, first there's her rival, Penina. What do you think of Penina? I heard one pastor preach on this. He says, even the name Penina sounds evil. <laughs> Hopefully nobody's named Penina in here. And there may be some truth in that, uh, but in many ways, Penina is just the voice of the culture. Hey, I got eight kids, you've got zero. Eight to zero, I'm a winner, you're a loser. He may love you more, but I've got the kids. Now, we don't know definitively, but most likely, Hannah was his first wife. She was unable to bear children. Hence the second wife. We don't know that definitively, but that's the way a lot of people look at it. But she's got the voice of her rival that is always turning the knife in her. Always at her, always reminding her, Hannah, you're, you're zero, I'm eight. I'm the winner, you're the loser in the culture. So that's one voice. She's got the voice of her husband. I'm fascinated by the husband's response. 
Is he a compassionate, understanding husband, or is he something else? Is my love not enough? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? I was thinking about this, and it was like, uh, I can't say that I watch these, but I've read about them, like Hallmark <laughs> romance movies. Some of you are there, don't you know, just... But, but I mean, it, it's, it seems like this sappy, sugary, sweet profession of romantic love. Maybe I'm reading into the text, forgive me if I'm doing that. But at one level, part of what that voice is saying, isn't my love enough? Isn't my love for you, Hannah, doesn't that fulfill you? So is it the voice of culture? Is it the voice of romantic love? We'll see how Hannah responds. And then there's Eli, the priest. He's got his own story that's kind of ugly. It'll get uglier as you go on in the text. But Eli doesn't understand her faithful prayer. Are you drunk? I mean, imagine, imagine what Hannah must be experiencing. Imagine the depth of that pain. Go there for a minute. Put yourself in her shoes. And then how would you respond? Would you go after Penina? Would you accept the romantic, sugary, sweet words of, her, of your husband? What would you do with Eli? So how does she respond? Let's look at her response. Because there are voices here. And as we think about Hannah's pain, there's voices that are speaking into it, which opens it up for us. What are the loudest voices that you hear? What are you turning up and what are you turning down? What are those voices, maybe in the midst of your own pain, in the midst of your own challenges, what are the, what are the voices that are influential? Maybe it's from culture, maybe it's from those closest to you, but, but what are those voices? Take, just I ask the Spirit, say, help me to see that. Help me to identify what those voices are and then let's see how we can respond. So I want us to think about Hannah's processing. What does, she, what does she do with all of these voices? How does she actually respond? Well, first of all, let's look at what she doesn't do. She doesn't retaliate. We'll give her a gold star for that, right? She doesn't go after Penina. She's not saying, well, he loves me more than you. At least the text doesn't record it. I don't know what all was said there. And it's clear that her husband does have affection for her, does love her, gives her the double portion, all these things. But she's not going to respond to that. So she's not going to accept the narrative of culture there. She also doesn't respond to the affections of her husband. She's also, there's, there's no happy hallmark ending here. Well, there kind of is, but that, that comes later. But, but it's not the romantic love that's going to say, okay, now I have worth. My husband loves me. Now I am complete. That's not going to be enough for her. So she doesn't respond to that voice either. But let's look at what she does do. I want to take you to verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, this might be one of those little details that you gloss over. 
You say, well, okay, she ate and she stood up. But you look at the Hebrew in this, and the scholars say this. This, word, this Hebrew word for stood up, is, it's, it's an idiom. It's an expression. Okay, an idiom is like, an, you know, like, hey, he put his foot down. Maybe he didn't literally put his foot down. Or I'm going to put my foot on the gas, or I'm going to get it in gear. These are all idioms, expressions that mean something else. So the Hebrew scholars say when, when it says Hannah stood up, she is taking a decisive action. There is a moment here where she will take charge. She's not going to listen to all these voices from the outside. She's going to take charge. She will stand up. So what is she going to do? What's her response? Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord. Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Hannah will pour out her heart to the Lord. Can the Lord handle your bitterness, your complaints, the honest outpouring of your Of course he can. And that's the decisive step that Hannah will take. She will pour out her heart to the Lord. This is an honest prayer. This is an authentic prayer. This is a real prayer. This is not a clean it all up before you go to the Lord prayer. This is, this is my heart. It's what the Lord wants from us. Verse 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty... If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now let's work with this for a moment here. What is her prayer? What is she asking? At some level, you can look at it and say, is this a transactional prayer? Lord, if you do this, then I will do that. Have you ever prayed one of those prayers? Be honest. If you get me out of this bind, I will serve you forever. Maybe in some of those decades, you've had some of those prayers. But let's look at, look at a little more depth of what she's praying. If you give me a child, what will I do? Will I take him into the marketplace and will I show him off to all the other people? Will I rub it in Penina's face? Will I go to my husband and say, okay, now I have true worth? What does she do? She says, I will give him back to you. I will give him. Now, this wasn't just metaphorical here. This wasn't like when we dedicate babies and all that, we're, we're bringing them before the Lord and we're making commitments and all these things which are wonderful. This is hardcore dedication here. This is to take a Nazarite vow and for him to literally be at the tabernacle, to literally, after he's weaned, he will, she will literally give him, to the, pre, give him to, to the tabernacle. She won't see him all the time. So before we come down and want to critique her for being transactional in her prayer, understand what she is actually doing. She is giving him to the Lord. And we, we look at you know, the, this, this, this particular vow. We can look back and see the bad example of Samson who didn't cut his hair. 
look forward to a good example of John the Baptist. But way back in the day, in, in you know, Old Testament times, it, the, it was the Levites who ran the tabernacle in the temple. They were the priestly class, and they were the ones who lived in the tabernacle. They couldn't own property. They didn't have some of the economic benefits. They would be completely dependent upon offerings from the tabernacle and such. To be a Nazarite is to be a voluntary Levite. It's to make that choice. So we see the significance of her response, her true dedication. And then what happens to her? She will experience peace. She will walk away and her face will no longer be downcast. But when does this occur? Is it before or is it after her pregnancy? It's before. It's before. There's a pattern of pain and then prayer and then some peace. And then the pregnancy, then the deliverance. So she doesn't know. Now, Eli's going to say some kind words to her. He's going to say, the Lord's going to hear your prayer. But there's no concrete evidence of an answered prayer yet. But her peace comes. What a model for us. For our peace to be not dependent upon our particular, specific prayer. Well, I want to give you this bottom line to, to really work into your own life. And that's to process your pain with the one who can provide you lasting peace and influence. To process your pain with the one who can give you lasting peace, lasting eternal influence. That's at least one major takeaway we can, we can get from Hannah. But the benefit that we have, that at this particular time in redemptive history, Hannah did not have. You see, Hannah had a priest who was imperfect, who thought she was drunk, and finally kind of came around. I, I think he was a little slow on the uptake there. But when we pray, we have Jesus who hears, who knows, who understands. He never misreads our emotions. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who hears us. I mean, have you ever had those prayers where you're like, I can't even put it into words, I'm in so much pain. If somebody looked at me from the outside, it's a mess. But the Holy Spirit Here's our groans. That's what the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 8. He intercedes for us in our weakness. So poor Hannah had Eli who, with, with all of his challenges and limitations, but we have the Holy Spirit. And when you think about the influence of that particular prayer, Samuel would, would be born. Samuel would, would grow up. He would be this kind of judge and then prophet. He would, he would name the, the first king. He would do all these things and on and on. 
it would go. But more than that, there's a particular prayer that she's going to offer after the birth of the child. And I want to look at that. I want to look at Hannah's prayer. I invite you to turn to chapter 2. We're going to look at the opening and the closing of this little prayer. If you're like me, sometimes you read the Old Testament and you just kind of read it fast and you follow the story and you're like, okay, this happened, this happened. And, and sometimes it's hard to slow down. I remember back in my English teacher day, you know, I remember having a, a kid came and he said, oh, Mr. Gallman, you know, I'm such a good reader. I'm on this speed reading program and I can read so many words a minute. And I'm like, what are you, I don't care how many words a minute you can, I'm, I'm going to teach you how to slow down when you read, not speed up. When I'm through with you, it's going to take you forever to read through something because we're going to look at some details. But I want you to pay attention to this prayer. And we'll just look at a few verses. We had Hannah's prayer of pain and anguish, but this is her really song of celebration. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Those are beautiful words of worship. I can't think of how many songs have been, worship songs have been written around some of these verses and concepts. And that in and of itself is marvelous. But now I want to take you to the end of the prayer. I want you to go to verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He will exalt the horn of his anointed. This word anointed here, you know what it is in the Hebrew? Messiah. Messiah. Now, back in Hannah's day, there, there are no kings yet. We're going to get there. They're still ruled by judges. There's no kings. There's, there, Hannah's not like, I can, I, I know there's going to be, she has the Holy Spirit's inspiring her, this, this song. She's looking forward to a time of king. She's looking forward to David. But this will ultimately point to the anointed one, ultimately point to the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's amazing. That's amazing. Why do we read God's word? Why do we look at the whole thing? Because we want to look back and see his faithfulness throughout the generations, throughout history. We need a bigger picture of what that is. Bigger picture historically, bigger picture geographically. God is just bigger than what's happening on the south side of Indianapolis in our particular time of influencers. But that's pointing to Jesus himself. Now, stick with me here for just, a, just another minute. 1,100 years later, 
young Mary would sing another song. She would sing, and and it's fascinating, the words. Of course, she she would give birth to Jesus that would fulfill all this. But in Luke 1, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. You talk about influence. You think Mary knew Hannah's prayer? Of course she did. That, that's the words that she's speaking that ultimately point us to Jesus. So may we be a people who processes our pain with the one who truly understands, the one who can truly give us peace, and the one who can truly give us everlasting influence. Now, the thing about Jesus, though, and as we prepare to come to the communion table, I want to I give you this thought. Jesus would become the king of kings, but he wouldn't do it through the way the influencers would do it. He would go to the cross. He would take the pain that we deserved. He would take the pain of all of our sin. He would take the pain of all of that to make a way for us so that we could be near to him. So as we come to the communion table this morning, that's what we remember. And here at Community Church, our table is open to all who've put their faith and trust in him. Doesn't mean you've got it all figured out. Doesn't mean you don't have doubts, questions, anger, trouble. We, we give him our pain. We give him our sin. We give him our fears. We give him our doubts. So even now as you sit there, just give that to him. And we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in the upper room and they had their own pain, their own doubts, their own misunderstandings, their own questions about influence and power. And Jesus was going to turn all that upside down. And he, after praying and giving thanks, he, he, he broke the bread and gave it to him. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this, this cup represents my blood that will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Blood shed for the, new, the blood of the new covenant. So just as you receive the bread, may you receive the cup. And when we do that, we proclaim the Lord's death. We, we proclaim that significance, and we look forward to his ultimate return. So I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, know that the table is open for you to come and receive. Come forward and then take the elements back, and when you're ready, you can receive. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us Jesus. You have given us the Holy Spirit that you actually hear our prayers. So Lord, speak to our hearts, whatever the pain is today, whatever the forces are from the outside that tell us lies about who we are and who you are, would your voice, Jesus, be the loudest? So Lord, as we remember the bread, we remember 
the cup, we say thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, continue to work in our hearts as we receive. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Come now. The table's open.